From Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Meltem, you know what really grinds my gears? Tell me, Jill. We give banks our cash and get basically nothing in exchange. Talk about opportunity cost of capital. You know, it makes me sad every time I look at my bank account. Celsius Network is on a mission to change that. With their super easy mobile app, you can actually earn passive income up to 7% per year in a safe and secure way. Interest is paid out every week and there are no fees or penalties ever. If you head over to Celsius and tell them we sent you, they'll give you $10 bonus in Bitcoin after your first deposit greater than $500. Use code GEARS when signing up or go to celsius.network slash GEARS for more information. Time to give a shout out to one of our sponsors. Coindesk, the number one media outlet for all things blockchain and crypto is hosting Consensus, its annual event in New York City. Tickets are on sale now at www.consensus2019.com and you can save $300 if you use the promo code GEARS300. There's this phenomenon that happens when you read a news article about your area of expertise. And Michael Creighton, the famed film producer and writer, coined the term and defined it. He calls it the Murray-Gelman amnesia effect, which is a mouthful. He describes the effect. Quote, Briefly stated, the Gelman amnesia effect is as follows. You open the newspaper to an article on some subject you know well. In my friend Murray's case, that's physics. In mine, in his, it's show business. You read the article and see the journalist has absolutely no understanding of either the facts or the issues. Often, the article is so wrong it actually presents the story backward, reversing cause and effect. I call these the wet streets cause rain stories. Papers full of them. In any case, you read with exasperation or amusement at the multiple errors in a story, and then you turn the page to national or international affairs and read as if the rest of the newspaper was somehow more accurate about Palestine than the baloney you just read. You turn the page and forget what you know. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners today can relate, whether it's about cryptocurrencies, about finance, about infosec, about privacy, whatever it is. I'll bet that when you are reading an article about your area of expertise, your gears just start grinding. This is wrong. Where's the nuance? This is misleading. Well, Meltem, you and I are no different. So this we are week, not. <laughs> this week, we're here to grind on crypto in the media. And honestly, it is so, 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 so bad that sometimes it's actually good, but just as comedic theater. <laughs> 
So media about crypto has been at best confusing and at worst misleading. We're sitting on a seesaw bouncing back and forth between unrealistic hype, overselling the technology, and on the other side, a tale of doom, destruction, terrorist financing, and tax evasion. And the truth, of course. The truth is somewhere in between. It requires nuance, which doesn't sell newspapers, and it requires deep understanding of the technology, which may or may not be reasonable to ask of our journalists. But most importantly, it requires a in-depth understanding of the history of what's happened, the context in which to place these events, and the right way, or I guess the more correct way to describe these things is hard. So part of what we try to do with this show is to try and educate and debunk some of the misunderstandings around crypto. Now, I would argue that a lot of these misunderstandings come from the media itself. And so in today's episode, we'll be trying to do some of that in between all of our complaining and gear grinding. (laughs) But I also want to highlight there are glimmers of hope here and there. Um, I hope that for our listeners, our podcast is one such glimmer of hope. But I do think um, there are, you know, there's some articles that are written that are really good, surprisingly good. There are blogs that are written that are surprisingly good. And so let's try to present a balanced view, but let's also run this down. I think what's fun for me is I like to categorize the crypto FUD or the crypto fake news into key categories. So let's take it by starting, Jill, with our absolute favorite category. You know what it is. I know what it is. You want to take this? (laughs) Dr. Pangloss and the blockchain. Milton, who's Dr. Pangloss, firstly? Oh, I love this. So Dr. Pangloss is a character in a very old novel. And um, the story of Dr. Pangloss is basically about this pseudo-intellectual court philosopher who's advising a young nobleman named Candide. The book is a piece of satire. It was written by Voltaire, who if you study philosophy or the art of satire, you know Voltaire's work well. But it's basically about this snake oil salesman pseudo-intellectual philosopher philosopher wannabe named Dr. Pangloss, who had a cure for everything. Mm -hmm. And the story is quite sad because the story of Pangloss, he basically leads Candide astray, who goes from being a nobleman to being a very poor man wandering the earth in search of truth. Um, But it's a wonderful piece of satirical fiction um, if you'd like to read it. And so the idea here is that there's this class of articles, this class of media that's been produced that pitches blockchains in the same way that Dr. Pangloss pitches his cures. Blockchain is a cure for everything. And really, we're not so sure that we're convinced. You might just end up like Candide if you take that advice. Yes. And actually, if you've heard the word panacea, that word comes from Pangloss. So Pangloss has these cures for all called panaceas. And so my gripe is always blockchain is not a panacea for all of the evils of the world. But Jill, you have an even better story about this. Yeah. Okay. So this this to me just kind of sums up the problem. And this is actually part of this experience is part of the inspiration for this episode. So just last week, I was having dinner with my mom. We were catching up. And early in dinner, she pulls out this magazine and shows me an article all about the blockchain. Now, my mom is a very smart woman. She worked on Wall Street for a number of years. She can follow pretty well, you know, as I'm talking about my job and my career, even though it's in this far off land called crypto. 
But it's pretty rare that she comes to me with something about crypto or blockchain. But she's all excited about this article and she goes, check this out. You can use a blockchain to track fine art. All of these provenance issues, all of this money that Sotheby's and Christie's make by tracking down provenance, all of this is going to go away. It's going to get solved using a blockchain. No, 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 no. I'm like, oh, God. I'm like, we've just sat down to dinner. We're about to have, you know, a really nice time catching up. And I'm, I'm like taking a deep breath. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to have to spend the next at least 20 minutes like explaining <laughs> that I, I don't really think that a blockchain can do that. And she's so excited. But you don't want to dash – yeah, you don't want to dash her hopes and yeah, dreams. Yeah, she's all about this use case. She's so excited. And now I'm going to have to spend the rest of dinner explaining about last mile problems and garbage in, garbage out with data and how blockchains are really only good for digital assets. And if it's in the real world, then you still have to find a way to link it to the blockchain. So maybe you can track a title, but you can't actually track the art. Blah, blah, blah. Why aren't we just using a centralized database anyway? And I've had this experience, not with my mom, but I've had this experience with people so many times where they come to me and they're like, look at this cool thing that a blockchain can do. I, I saw it on CNBC. I read about it in Bloomberg. And I, I then am like, uh, yeah, like maybe maybe it can do that, but I doubt it. And then they're like, wait, if why are you, why are you such a hater, Jill? Like what you know, yeah. why are you tearing it down? Why do you work in this space if you're such a hater? <laughs> well, so, the, but I do feel this is challenging. And I actually had the same experience with my mom. So my mom's my number one fan. For those of you who've been on Twitter, you've heard about Denise. You've probably seen Denise. She's Denise is where it's at. My mom's incredible. She's a phenomenal woman. So my mom loves texting me because at this point she knows it just triggers me. And so my mom loves texting me being like, Hey, I saw this IBM commercial. They're putting my tomatoes on the blockchain. Hashtag salad chain. So she trolled me now, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, but look, the way that, and, and I understand, here's the other flip side of it though. I understand what the media is trying to do. When you're talking about a blockchain, which is a way of reaching consensus, it's a data structure, it's a ledger, that's not that sexy. So the reason the media tries to talk about these use cases is they make the so why of blockchains more tangible for people. The problem totally. I have is what they're describing is completely infeasible. But I don't think this is a media problem because look at the way that IBM promotes blockchains. Look at the way that you know large consultancies promote blockchains. Even the way people who are building in this industry talk about their product it just further perpetuates this Panglossian sort of utopian blockchainification problem. So I totally agree with you that companies and sort of shills within the industry are in part to blame. But let's be honest, media media doesn't have something to sell in the way that IBM does. Media should be selling the objective truth. And yet, they seem to be taking the same sort of tropes and examples and false use cases that we see on IBM ads and injecting them into their articles. But Jill, let me ask you a question, right? So say that you're a writer at a media outlet. Say you're a writer at, um, I don't know, insert publication here, and your editor comes to you or you're in your weekly meeting where you're talking about key storylines for the week and everyone's like, oh my God, blockchain, 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 blockchain. We got to write about blockchains, blockchains, blockchains. What are you going to write about? You're going to go out and be like, okay, how do I help my readers 
get excited about a blockchain? What makes people want to click on an article about a blockchain? It's not about all the complexities of resolving last mile challenges. It's not that 20 minute conversation you had with your mom. <laughs> there has to be some sort of sexy narrative that makes people click. And a great example, I just want to tell a quick story of one of these use cases. So if you'll remember in 2017, there's this artist, Imogen Heap. I'm a big fan of hers, but she partnered I love up. Imogen Heap. She's great, right? Hide and Seek is still one of my favorite songs. Highly recommend. Um, <laughs> but she partnered up with one of these consensus spoke companies, not consensus with a U, which is the conference, which is one of our sponsors, but consensus with a Y, which is sort of the Ethereum application development studio, they had this spoke called Ujo Music. And they partnered up with Imogen Heap to release this song called, uh, I think it was called Tiny Human. And they were going to release it via Ujo Music, right? You remember this because everybody was talking about it, right? The amount of PR they did was insane, right? Everyone was talking about it. Now, in reality, guess how much of this song actually got sold via Ujo Music and guess how much in revenue they generated? (laughs) I, I mean, I kind of want to say that none of the song got got sold by Ujo Music, but well, they had a lot of. I have to, I have to imagine there was at least some fake volume in there. No, so th- there was one hundred sixty dollars of sales that happened via this, <laughs> which. But again, look, not a bad thing. And I'm by no means criticizing the people involved. It was an experiment. And the experiment proved that the user experience had a lot of issues. And actually, Ujo Music, to their credit, wrote a whole blog about what they learned from the experience. But the way people still talk about this example, people like I go to conferences and people are like, oh, yeah, music's getting issued on the blockchain. Ujo Music, Imogen Heap, this major release. I'm like, that's not even true. The thing is, if you look at the facts of the situation, that's not what happened. It hurts me. It I mean, hurts it, me. It's like daggers in the heart. This is like every press release, though, that's been put out about blockchain in the last five years, right? All of these press releases about, oh, you know, such and such is running in production and is helping manage, you know, target supply chain and so and so is you know, putting into production a blockchain that is going to replace the entire DTCC. Like all of these pr- press releases are, are are just feeding into this, this sort of false narrative that all of this is real and it's happening, right? Which right. as an industry participant, maybe I shouldn't be complaining about because it lends us legitimacy, but it's false legitimacy. It's falsely won legitimacy because it's not, it's not yet real. The volumes are low. None of it's actually being used yet. And the issue I have is it's not based on reality number one, but also the experiences we've had. Many of these projects, um, you know, we've never heard from again. Many of these use cases we've never heard of again. Because to your point, Jill, there is, and this is the fundamental problem with just wrapping your mind around blockchain for the enterprise or blockchain for consumer use cases in general, there isn't really that killer user experience yet. The killer use case is the problem Bitcoin solves, which we've talked about at length. It's some of the problems around trust, um, value transfer, privacy, etc. But it's not this problem that blockchains claim to solve, which are fundamentally human coordination problems. That's right. That's right. And I want to just call out one article in particular. I I don't 
don't want to be too hard on any given outlet or journalist because everyone is guilty of this at some point or another. But there was this article in the New York Times about a year and a half ago, I want to say, I think it was early 2018, beyond the Bitcoin bubble, that talk about grinding my gears. Oh my God. (laughs) This article went totally (laughs) viral. Every crypto VC, every... uh, everyone on CNBC, every shill that exists out there, but even people outside of the industry, everyone was jazzed about this article because it finally kind of broke down what it's all about. What is crypto all about? But there were so many things going on in this article. It it kicks off by sharing a secret seed and a private key. Which, like, for the love of God, if you're writing a piece about security for a broad audience – don't choose as a cute way of kicking off the post to share a private key. Like it, I that- also love, I love that they call Ethereum a democracy and say there's no imperial chief executive, which is like imagine Ethereum. believing that that's how Ethereum is run. <laughs> imagine that. that's what people believe. But this look, this is part of the cycle. Let's leave behind the world of Panglossian enterprise blockchains. You and I joke internally about salad chain. There's a ship chain. There's a chain chain that's going to link the chains that track the things. So all of the chains for all of the things. Um, It is a beautiful fantasy, but it is just that. It is a fantasy. I want to say just one more thing before we move on which is the confusion amongst the various technologies that make up a blockchain. Like Very often in these articles, do I see the word distributed confused for decentralized or vice versa? Very often do I see public key technology confused for a blockchain. Like as though as though, you know, Diffie and Hellman only came along once Satoshi had written the white paper. And I I think that that's one thing where as much as we're sort of laughing, joking, complaining, I'm like, this should not be the case. This should not be that hard to tease apart what technology has predated this and what is doing, what is actually achieving something here versus just the sort of, yeah, panacea of hand-waving, calling it all a blockchain. Yeah. And then I think the bigger issue is, is every article about blockchains talks about Bitcoin and digital currencies. And the issue I have is I speak to so many people who, you know, they read these publications um, and they obviously trust the reporting. And I would say generally these publications do a fair job at, at coverage. But I think the issue is they then start to conflate Bitcoin with private blockchains. They start to meld all these things together when they are fundamentally very different. So let's move on. Pangloss would certainly have a field day in this era of magical (laughs) blockchains. But luckily for us, um, the tale of Candide ends on a happy note. So perhaps in this blockchain jungle, we will find a hope like Candide to be seen. Pangloss. No more Pangloss for this episode. So Voltaire fans, uh, you may want to tune out. <laughs> no. Are there Voltaire fans actually, do you think? Uh, I don't know if there are in our audience. I'm sure we've got a couple. Give us yeah. a shout out if you're a Voltaire fan. I'm more of a Camus gal. I think you and I bonded <laughs> over our love of, of absurdism. Yes, indeed. Oh, that's quite the tongue twister. Anyways, next topic. So we talked about Dr. Pangloss and the magical, wonderful blockchain. Topic number two, shilling. 
Okay. So this phrase shilling gets used a lot and it's actually a terrible phrase, but I like to think of it as blatant promotion um, that is very self-interested. And I think what's so interesting about this topic, and I've written really candidly about my struggles between remaining objective um, while also being an investor, there is this really fine line that starts to emerge between sharing news and sharing insight and pumping your portfolio. This is why in 2017, I wrote a personal disclosure and a token disclosure for the firm I was at at the time. And um, I've come under fire for this. I've done my best everywhere I can. And I think I'm still one of the only people who invests professionally, who also um, does a lot of disclosure and sort of tries to caveat, I'm an investor, I have interest here. But the difficulty really comes, I'm not in the media. But there are actually people in crypto media who are fund managers, who are investors, who are advisors. And the challenge here becomes if they're on TV every day and they're educating millions of viewers, how do you know that they're objective? This also comes up with journalists. I think Laura Shin, um, when she was writing at Forbes, did a great job disclosing that she owned Bitcoin and Ether, but no other digital currencies. Um, But how do you walk that fine line since everyone in the world theoretically could easily own some cryptocurrencies? Let's talk about how not to do it. Do you want to take that topic, Jill? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the whole topic is pretty interesting because there's there's the open question, right, of... In order to be objective, do you have to own no cryptocurrency? Do you have to own a little bit of Bitcoin? Do you have to have dabbled sort of widely and broadly? Because there's also the risk, right, that if you don't own any crypto and you see it going up, up and away, then you're going to become this sort of the trope of the embittered no coiner, right? Who's just writing negative articles about Bitcoin because you missed the boat. And so the I, no coiners. I, I think or actually you may write really bad articles because you've never actually used cryptocurrencies. So I totally get your point. Exactly. There. But how and, do you do how do you do it well is the question. I, I think that Lee Quen at uh, at Coindesk actually does a really good job of this, of you know, being actively involved, using it, but not, I believe, holding any sort of long-term positions, at least none that she doesn't disclose. Um so I think that disclosures are absolutely the right way to do it. But some examples of of how not to do it probably. There's one figure in particular who's come under grave fire from the space, in particular from a media outlet called The Block that has done I think in general a pretty good job, sometimes a very controversial job of calling out a lot of the sort of nonsense or conflicts of interest uh, or set incentive misalignments that exist in the space. And the blog published this whole big long article about a figure who goes by the name of Crypto Manran, Ran Nooner, who is the host of CNBC South Africa. Uh, he runs a crypto trader show and he also runs a fund. Um, he invests, I think, both personally and via his his own fund in cryptocurrencies. And so, again, this is a really challenging line to walk, right? When you have skin in the game in these things, but you're also working in the media as a media figure. Um, and the block in particular calls him out on this one uh, token project that he brought onto a show that he was tweeting a lot about called Blockchain Terminal that turned out to be a huge fraud. Um, and and unfortunately, the whole project, I believe, has gone to zero. And 
Ran at the time, again, was claiming to be a big investor, sort of proudly touting, you know, the the new technology that that they were bringing to market. And lo and behold, it turned out to be a complete fraud. Um, now, I, I believe that Ran has since gone back and said, you know, I... You know, I was never sort of actually promoting them. I only invested a small amount into the project, so on and so forth. So I'm not one to judge on sort of what is actually fact or FUD here. But I I do think that it's worth calling out as an example, regardless of who did what and who invested what and where, that, you know, there there are these conflicts of interest that certainly exist. Always. Um, And in fact, I first had to deal with this when in uh, 2017 at Money 2020, which is a big finance and payments focused conference, um, I did a fireside chat with the Tezos founders. And one of the first things I said, I sat down in stage and I just very clearly disclosed, here's my relationship with these two people. Here's my financial interest. Here's my firm's financial interest. These are the facts now we can start because I think it's just important. But the question is always, could you do more? Could you do less? Don't know. But at least trying to me feels like a step in the right direction. But let's talk about my most surreal shell moment when I actually had to pinch myself because I thought I was living in an alternate universe. So CNBC. CNBC's 2018 crypto coverage at some point deserves a Razzie. For people who don't know what Razzies are, they're like the Emmys, but for really crappy movies and TV. (laughs) CNBC in January 2018. I remember this because I was standing in the green room. Um, I was going to be on that day. And I watched Brian Kelly, who I adore. Brian's a lovely human and he's endlessly entertaining. But he was standing there doing a tutorial for people on how to buy XRP. And he was walking through like click by click. Click by click, XRP was at $2.50. It was insane standing there watching someone on financial news communicating to retail investors click by click how to buy XRP. I mean, it boggles the mind. It really and does. it's important to bear in mind that XRP, XRP has since retraced, I think, like 90% of its value from that day. This was the top. I, I mean, in, in the world of finance in general, on Wall Street, we had a saying that if CNBC is saying to buy, it's time to sell, uh, <laughs> which I, I think is more about CNBC being very geared towards retail investors anyway, right? But that's part of the problem here is that someone's on TV talking to retail investors, talking to mom and pop, teaching them how to buy XRP when really... Like they probably have no business trying to purchase any kind of token, let alone XRP. But look, if you if you look at CNBC's normal coverage, and I unfortunately usually have CNBC on in in my office, just muted, because um, I like to see what's happening in the market. But if you have CNBC on, people are talking about their stock recommendations all the time, right? People come on mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh, I think you should buy Tesla. Oh, oil is a great sector. Here are the five stocks. Where buy?" Like that's not unusual. I don't think talking about specific assets is unusual, right? And typically you'll have a little sidebar that says this person and their fund is exposed to this, 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 and they'll have disclosures. And there are a lot of rules and regulations around that. And so you just disclose it and then you talk about your perspectives. The issue I had is 
buying XRP is not buying a stock. You're encouraging people to go to like a very high risk platform to buy a digital currency. And that to me is a little more challenging, particularly in 2018, um, because there's all these custodial risks. Again, that learning curve was still so steep. Um, So I kind of, I kind of see it. A hundred percent. But again, I just think there's that fine line, um, but shilling or blatant self-promotion, it's always been a part of this industry. It will be a part of every industry that involves investing, um, but it's just hilarious. You know the XRP thing was bad because even Pomp was tweeting about how bananas it was (laughs) that someone was walking through click by click how to buy XRP on CNBC. Like if Pomp is saying that, you know it's it's extreme. I love it. I love Pomp is a great marketer. Um, He's done a lot of brilliant marketing, brilliant brilliant marketing for our community. All right. Yeah. So the hunt for Satoshi. So this has been one of the most persistent tropes of crypto in the media. Oh, it's it's so bad. Um, So let's start at the beginning. So Satoshi has been talked about. Journalists made a big deal out of trying to find him in the first crypto bull run. And Newsweek wrote this whole cover story um, in 2014 about how they had found Satoshi Nakamoto. The face behind Bitcoin, indeed. And they had found this gentleman named Dorian Nakamoto, who, for all intents and purposes, was someone leading a quiet life. Um, And Newsweek took this person and wrote this long article about them, made all of these very loose sort of associations. I don't know who fact-checked the article or how, but basically this coverage ruined this person's life. That's right. I mean, the the article, it didn't just try to detail how this person could be Satoshi. They dug into his sort of family history and family issues and arguments that had gone on. Um, you know, and it, and, was, it was bad. And it they was, talk was, and, and the article even talks itself about how sort of scared this guy, Dorian, was as the journalist is sort of hunting him down and knocking on his door and asking him about Bitcoin. And remember, this is 2014. Like Bitcoin is not mainstream yet. Bitcoin Mm -hmm. is still associated with drug deals and terrorist financing and so on. It still is today, thanks to the media's coverage. That's true. It still is. It still is. But we'll get into that. Absolutely a a disgrace, I think. Um, And And I think Newsweek ended up having to write an apology within the Bitcoin community. There were a number of people who set up crowdfunding sites to help Dorian and his family. Um, And I believe Dorian had some social anxiety and other sort of issues he was dealing with, which was further just compounded by all of this unwanted attention. But the media has this pervasive obsession that if they find Satoshi, it's kind of like, um, you know, the Crusades for the Lost Ark. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like this, this massive hunt. Um, so then we get to our second Satoshi, who I want to talk about briefly. So when Craig Wright first announced he was Satoshi, this was at Consensus 2017. I remember that date was the state was deliberately chosen. The way it was done was deliberately chosen. There were all of these like beautifully shot images of Craig Wright writing on a glass wall. Um, <laughs> and there was this massive 30 pe- 
page piece that was written about him. He had this whole, like, it was just insane. It was the biggest PR effort I'd ever seen from someone who wanted to step forward and say he was Satoshi. I'm not going to comment on the validity of that claim. If you are into that, um, crypto Twitter is a great place to hang out right now. But it was totally the opposite approach. Dorian was a person who wanted no attention, wanted nothing to do with the media. And here you have this person who pops up out of nowhere and says, look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, it was really interesting. I mean, it's uh, kind of shocking. But uh, here's the thing, though, is, again, this comes back to the expert reading these types of pieces, the expert reading about his or her own field. Like, no one within the crypto space, I don't think, ever takes these types of allegations seriously. But with Craig Wright, because- people did. People did. People came out of the woodwork um, and kind of vouched for a him. handful did. Yes, a, a handful small handful. Did. Anyways, it's it's kind of the opposite approach. But then I want to talk about our next crypto messiah. So there's this crazy hunt for Satoshi, and the pontification continues. When I speak to journalists, a lot of them like to tell me their favorite theories as to who Satoshi is. It's just so fascinating. I'm at a point where. And I think most people um, are at a point where we've kind of accepted Satoshi is a very important part of Bitcoin's story. Um, but who Satoshi is is no longer really relevant, right? It's like it doesn't matter. It's a cultural myth, kind of like um, the usual. I would rather not know. Exactly. It's like the usual suspects, right? It's like the devil's exactly. greatest trick was convincing people he didn't exist. <laughs> Exactly. exactly. Sorry, I got to bring some movie quotes in. So then the <laughs> next, um, I feel like this hunt for Satoshi Nakamoto then set off this wave of reporting that was about these male crypto messiahs who were the next crypto Jesus, right? So I feel like Vitalik yeah. has gotten a lot of this coverage where he is hailed, you know, as this wunderkind of Ethereum, this mastermind. Um, and I feel badly because Vitalik's also just a person. I don't know if he welcomes it or not, but um you know, it, it seems to be a prominent story people want to write about. And now in like 2017, 2018, even 2019, journalists keep glomming on to this narrative of like the nerd coder turned crypto mastermind who is architecting the next X and changing the world. Like it's so bad. It's People want the hero's journey, right? People want a hero figure and some some narrative to cling on to. Right. But the crypto messiah archetype is laughably bad. It's like something out of a B grade like rom-com where the dork gets the girl at the end. It's so bad. And, you know, it's not just these three sort of big major figures who we tend to hear about, Dorian, Craig, Vitalik, et cetera. There's also a very long tail of other individuals who've been affected by this. I had a professor actually at Oxford, uh, Vili Ledonverta is his name, who had a bunch of articles written about him, I believe in 2015, about how he could be Satoshi. And what's the most laughable to me about that is he's actually turned out to be something of a blockchain bear. Maybe a blockchain realist would be the better way to put it. But if you follow him on Twitter or read any of the writing that he's done or any of his research, it's all about how we need to sort of temper our beliefs in what this technology can do. It's like the media is out here trying to paint him as as the crypto messiah. It's ridiculous. But it just, it grinds my gears because the archetype is like someone who is a little bit asty. And people now, when I talk to people, one of the things people will come up and say to me, especially if it's someone working on new protocols, oh, I'm on the spectrum. Like that's a point of pride. 
That is not a. It's so insane. It's so obscene. That's weird. That's offensive. It's, That's honestly just kind of. Offensive. It's so. And the people try to use it to like justify really bizarre antisocial behavior, and I can't. I would never say that to someone. I don't. It's just. I find the whole this whole side of reporting um, to be so distasteful, and I imagine it happens in other industries. But what I go back to, right? Uh, sorry, I'm going to pull in history for a moment, Jill. Is the books that get written about people, um, the things we read about, typically the people you're reading about are not the real heroes, right? And I feel like in recent years, there have been more books that have tried to kind of focus on some of the side figures that history hasn't popularized, who are probably more instrumental than some of these quote unquote messiahs. But I feel like all of the attention goes to these like very stereotypical sort of archetype characters that are clickbaity for people to write about. And I feel like a lot of the attention is misplaced, A, but B, also this isn't like about individuals. The human interest side of crypto is a little bit odd because this isn't about any one individual. It's sort of antithetical to what we're trying to do. I don't know. I struggle with totally. it. Totally. I struggle. I, I, I want to I add one thing here, which is that, so that original article we mentioned, the face behind Bitcoin about Dorian Nakamoto, uh, was written by someone named Leah mcgrath Goodman, which may sound familiar to you if you've been become a connoisseur of crypto white papers over the years, because the original Tezos white paper was actually pseudonymed by someone named L.M. Goodman, which I get kind of a laugh out of. <laughs> I think it's a funny kind of poke at the absurdity of people trying to figure out who Satoshi is and this whole sort of crypto god figure. And here's another white paper that was written under a pseudonym, and that pseudonym is directly pointing to this. So just a little Easter egg for those of you. Love it. Like well, the hunt for Satoshi in my mind is is over. Um, but I suppose, you know, as with all things, I'm sure there will be a reality show at some point called I Am Satoshi, where people compete to be the most Satoshi-like. And at that point, I will need to define something to do with my time. <laughs> That isn't like I'm gonna be that crazy grandma sitting in the living room being like, What in my day? Topic four Are you ready, Jill? <laughs> this is one of my favorites. This trope actually has probably been around at least as long, if not longer, as the hunt for Satoshi. It's so bad. Stock photo images. <laughs> <laughs> So bad. Okay, there are four standard stock photo images for Bitcoin. Um, first is a gold coin with the Bitcoin B on it, which yeah. is like so antithetical to the point because you're using a gold coin with a logo on it to represent a digital currency. So that's number one. Um, number two is a blockchain represented as these dots connected by lines. Mm -hmm. Typically the background's like blue, the dots and the lines are white and they have kind of a glow. It looks really futuristic, but that's Represents the blockchain. cyberspace. Yeah, blockchains. Um, image three is someone sitting at a laptop with like lots of screens, basically a trading terminal. And um, it's like dark and they have a face mask on maybe and the screens look really ominous and they're like a Russian cyber mobster. Yeah, trading. it's like Mr. Robot. It's like a screenshot out of Mr. Robot. <laughs> trading cryptos. Um, <laughs> okay. And then stock image five is uh, a bunch of nerdy white dudes um, at some sort of event looking serious. 
Well, that's just real. That's not that's not even a stock image. That's just taken at these conferences. Okay, so my favorite is um, about these stock photo images is uh, there's now a movie that has taken all of your favorite crypto stock images, has taken all of your favorite Tumblr and Reddit and 4chan memes and put them into a blender and combined them all and made a milkshake of hilariously awful crypto <laughs> tropes. And it's called Crypto. It features Kurt Russell as a potato farmer. I shit you not. Kurt Russell is a <laughs> potato farmer. His son is a compliance investigation officer who gets fired from his hotshot job for being too good at compliance and uncovering like some insider grift situation who then moves to the small potato farming town he's from and uncovers a massive crypto scam. I haven't yet seen it, Meltem. Is it any good? No, it's not. I just wrote a whole Twitter thread on it. Um, it's six ninety nine on Amazon Prime, so I don't want to discourage you from seeing it because <laughs> there are far worse uses of six dollars and ninety nine cents. In fact, uh, you know that's only two and a half XRP. Had you bought XRP during the CNBC oh, tutorial, <laughs> but um. It's just the whole perception people have, just the stock images people use are hilarious. And I get it. You're trying to represent something that is quite intangible. It's so abstract. Yeah, but it's almost like, you know, for VR and AR, there's only one stock image. It's someone wearing like the headset. Uh, For robotics, there's only one stock image. I feel like a lot of technology has really bad stock images, but crypto is kind of the the worst of them all because we have to see it every day. Well, my favorite thing is when there's an article published about like enterprise blockchain and they use the Bitcoin, gold coin, stock photo image. It's like this... These two things are not related literally at all. Or else there there might be an article about Bitcoin and they'll use a stock image that has like the Bitcoin gold coin in the middle and then the silver light coin to the left and then the like blue XRP symbol to the right. The fidget spinner. <laughs> Indeed, the fidget spinner, which if that doesn't grind your gears, I don't know what will because it's like we're talking about Bitcoin over here and – Instead, the stock image is by proxy shilling XRP. But I love, in a way, so um, Naraj K. Agrawal, who runs communications at Coin Center, which is a nonprofit policy think tank, he actually does a great job. He had this whole thread last year where he would repost all of the terrible Bitcoin stock images. And I've actually done a search myself whenever you know I was writing content. I try to look for stock images. And it is pretty dark out there. I mean, there was one I found that was a guy dressed uh, like an evil character from The Matrix, and he was trying to bite a gold coin with a Bitcoin logo on it, like trying to eat it. And it just... What? <laughs> like to test if it's real gold? <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. Why? Why? But why? I don't know. This is one that's more funny than anything else. And look, I don't have a solution for it. I don't know how you make better stock images. But if anyone is listening that's into graphic design or photography, please help us. Someone please make a better crypto stock image site. I feel like there's a market for it. Absolutely. Request for product. Request for photo. Request for photo. RIP. <laughs> RFP. <laughs> sorry. Not RIP. <laughs> RFP Bitcoin stock images. Okay. Topic five. Mm. Everyone is getting hilariously rich or hilariously wrecked. Yeah. Uh, this is this is kind of where I started with the opening of like the bouncing back and forth on this seesaw. It's like, oh, Bitcoin is up 2%, which is, uh, you know, a trivial amount given Bitcoin's 
general volatility. It's like suddenly all of these articles are getting published about how, you know, Bitcoin is going to the moon. It's going to skyrocket. Everyone's going to get super rich. And then Bitcoin will retrace the same amount. And suddenly, like, Bitcoin is dead, which we'll get into Bitcoin is dead in a few minutes, but so, it's the same but, idea. But you know what my favorite is, Jill? Every single person I've ever talked to tells me that they bought Bitcoin at around 1000 or 3000 and they sold at the top. Everyone sold at the top. Everyone. In fact, I, I was didn't. watching um, – <laughs> I've never sold a Bitcoin. Um, I was watching this segment where um, it's like some – MSM, it was some millennial site where people were talking about their how they spend their money. And this one woman was on there and she's like, yeah, you know, I had a smart friend who got me into Bitcoin. I bought it 3000 and then I sold at 19000 Like everyone sold at the top. It's insane. Yeah, um, it's like, it's no, so bad. No. But I feel like people read this and there's this tremendous social pressure. And so what's so bad too is you'll go out and, you know, I love meeting people at events. I love talking to people. I love just hearing their story and just trying to understand how people outside of our little bubble world view crypto. And um, what I love is meeting those people who are like, yeah, I got into Bitcoin in 2007. I'm like, wow, that's early. (laughs) I don't know what to say to that. I don't need to rain on that person's parade. Like you got other problems going on there, <laughs> bud. Um, okay, but the 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 crux of this one, there was this New York Times article that got written, and in it is featured a photo of Coin Daddy. If you've not been introduced to Coin Daddy or his music, um, it's wonderful. Highly recommend it. Coin Daddy is this character that dresses like a flamboyant pimp. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, he has like a big hat with marabou feather trim on it. He wears like a silk suit. It's kind of amazing. And the title of this New York Times article written by Nellie Bowles was Everyone is Getting Hilariously Rich and You're Not. And it was all about, you know, these 20-somethings and 30-somethings who had bought primarily Ether and ICOs or shitcoins and was now like a millionaire and was quitting their jobs. And then not six months later... <laughs> Not six months later, the same author turns around and writes an article about how everyone is basically wrecked. It was just the perfect personification, again, of and, that archetype know, to, of get rich quick. credit and to the credit of the New York Times, those articles did capture the sort of zeitgeist of that moment in time in both cases, right? During the hilarious rise of of all of the prices and and the sort of crypto riche. And then their extreme absolute downfall just yeah. a few months later. So it did capture the zeitgeist, but it does, as you say, create this sort of social pressure around it. It creates this uh, this view of the technology and the industry that, oh, it's just all about making money. It's all about Lambo Moon. Um, and, you know, there is there is an aspect of the culture which is about that, but – I think that it's a little bit reductive. Well, in my view, the best article on this topic was written by Jeff Coughlin at Forbes. It's called Tricks of a Crypto Trader, and it's all about a crypto investment firm called FBG. I won't comment anymore on it. I think you should read it. Um, Another crypto fund manager says they think FBG is one of the most talented investor teams. Um, It's an amazing article. It basically talks about blatant market manipulation, um, and it talks about insider trading-like activity, which, you know, these things are not securities. In a lot of cases, they're considered commodities. But um, I recommend everyone read it. It's fascinating. I cannot believe that someone 
wrote this um, and got away with it. I cannot believe someone let themselves be quoted in this article, but it really is, to your point, Jill, an epitome of you know, everyone wants to be hedge fund manager. Everyone is amazing at investing until they're not. <laughs> totally. And yeah, we'll link this in the show notes. If you haven't read it, you absolutely should. It's amazing. So here we are. Topic six, Bitcoin is dead. Obituary part 1,949,087. <laughs> Yeah, we've touched on this one already. It's kind of impossible to do this show without touching on this multiple times because this is what the media tends to do, like clockwork. About once, I would say once every six months or so, there's a big push of these Bitcoin is dead articles that seem to come out from every angle. But Jill, Bitcoin is dead. Isn't there a website that actually tracks the articles that declares Bitcoin is I think dead? So. It's, it's like the Bitcoin or something. Yeah, there's a Bitcoin obituary tracker. I think after it hit entry number 350 in like 2017, it stopped getting updated. But to your point, there's actually this amazing tweet that I want to link um, that somebody posted where it was literally within two hours on the same day on the same media site. There was one article published at like 10 a.m. that was like, Bitcoin is rallying. Here are five experts on the rally. And then two hours later, when Bitcoin dropped 1%, Bitcoin is headed for a downward spiral. Here are five experts on why the cryptocurrency is floundering. Like, it <laughs> is the, the worst. <laughs> It was the worst clickbait. But the thing is, you would think it's just like, um, you know, not great publications that write this stuff. But there was this article in the New York Times recently that talked about how Bitcoin had failed and Facecoin or Zuckbucks and Telegram's ton and all these other like random, not at all digital currencies were going to replace Bitcoin. It was so misguided. And to, to be fair, I think that that was primarily the title of the article is bad. That, was, that was bad that was saying, you know, big, uh, you know, where Bitcoin has failed, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that the the actual body of the article was a bit more balanced, but everyone got super triggered by it, of course. Everyone was <laughs> Which was the point, because people oh, then clicked on it. Failed. It's like, yeah, that's actually exactly the point of the title. It's called clickbait, people. Yes. Okay. But we can't talk about Bitcoin is dead without talking about my favorite, we saved the best for last, topic number seven, FUD. Bitcoin FUD. And we cannot talk about Bitcoin FUD without talking about FUD dice. Now, right. I've talked about FUD dice before. I know you have some too, Jill. But um, there are these 12-sided die, and each side of the die has a reason that Bitcoin won't work. China. And yeah, we, we ought to give a shout out to the creator of the FUD dice as well. Yes, Mr. Nick Carter, Nick Carter. Island. Yes, exactly. And if you want FUD dice, I don't know if he's still making them, but follow him on Twitter, hit him up. I They're think well he still has He made a second edition, and I was not worthy of getting the second edition dice. I'm still on the first edition dice, but so you know. Got the original. Bitcoin's wasting energy. It's not decentralized. Seven transactions per second won't scale. Not private. So no much FUD. No Turing. Not Turing complete. Can't write smart contracts. But here's what I love the most is anytime people talk about Bitcoin FUD, it is in the context of shilling another shitcoin. So here's literally how your average conversation or your average article goes. 
This is Bitcoin. Bitcoin has all of these things. Here's how it works. Here are all the problems with Bitcoin. Enter new cryptocurrency that, by the way, no one has ever heard of. Here are all of the problems it resolves. This cryptocurrency can do 3 million transactions per second. With no trade-offs, right? And there are never any trade-offs with this new cryptocurrency. It can scale better than Visa. This new cryptocurrency is not centralized. This new cryptocurrency is not mined in China. It is green. Like, come on, people. Stop using FUD to try to substantiate things that are not real. So I want to define FUD though, because FUD, okay, FUD stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And that's important to know because the idea here is not just that the media or whoever it is, is putting out their false claims or claims that are a little bit misguided or misleading. It's the idea that the media or whoever it is, again, is sowing fear, uncertainty, and doubt, that they're playing into people's psyche, into their feelings in order to sell newspapers, in order to shill some new blockchain project or a new token. Uh, It's a very sort of Trumpian populist style playbook, right, which is that you're tapping into people's fear mechanisms in order to drive their engagement with you. But but look, here there's a long history we have to go back to here. Um number 1, I think um Bernays, who uh, is a writer from the 1930s, he he was the person who I think made really turned propaganda and uh, marketing into a science. And so um Bernays wrote this great book called Propaganda. I highly recommend you read it. I think propaganda today has a negative connotation, but much of the way that smoking was popularized in the US, um the way many lobbying groups work in the US, And actually, uh, Bernays is best known for something that is not so pleasant. Um, A lot of his writings on propaganda informed how the Third Reich or, um, you know, Hitler's Nazi Germany pursued their marketing, their propaganda activities. But really what it is all about social psychology and how to create new narratives. And if we know anything, um, anything that we've learned at all through the last 17 episodes of Gear Grinding, including this one, episode 17, Crypto is all about narratives, life in general, what people think, believes, all about narratives. And you can read Rene Girard and his thoughts on mimetic theory. You can read Bernays's propaganda. Um, you can read a lot of social psychology about how people use fear and doubt and uncertainty and appeal to these base emotions. But look, a lot of what we see here is really basic attempts at propaganda-driven marketing, right? Totally, totally. So I want to run through just very quickly some of the FUD that we've seen over the years. The first one to me that that is of note is the China FUD. It seems like, again, like clockwork, every six months or so, there's a big article that comes out about how China's banning Bitcoin. And this that, that means that this is the end of Bitcoin because that's where all the volume is and blah, 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 blah. This is the beginning of the end. It's like you just become immune to this headline over time because, okay, China's banned Bitcoin like 18,000 times over the years at this point. Yeah. Oh, the China FUD. Um, Energy waste. This one's my favorite. Bitcoin's going to boil the oceans and consume all energy in the universe if it's ever successful, which is why it can never succeed. We've spent a lot of time at my firm CoinShares debunking some of this and sharing some data around the types of energy that are used for Bitcoin mining. Um, But I think the energy waste narrative is one that's completely rampant and sort of not based in reality. The numbers that are thrown around, a lot of pseudoscience and pseudo-intellectual sort of 
narrative gets thrown around here, um, but the numbers definitely do not substantiate those arguments. And um, I think also generally here, typically when people talk about energy waste, they use it as a way to typically promote something else that is like Bitcoin, but without the energy waste, without actually acknowledging that without proof of work, there is very little to secure the network. Like it, To your point, Jill, the trade-offs just are not... Absolutely discussed at all. Um, Another area is the way that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies get used. We'll have these articles come out all the time that are all about how it's just terrorist financing, it's money laundering, it's drug trafficking, all of these things. And you'll note that in these articles, generally, there aren't a whole lot of numbers backing them up. Right. It's, you know, it's not looking at, okay, well, if you take the exchange volumes and you take on chain transactions, and we've worked with a firm like Chainalysis to figure out what the actual percentage is, it's just sort of these broad brush strokes, very anecdotal. Actually, if anyone has hard data on this, I'd be really curious. Please, please link it to us, send it along. Hard data. But again, um, having done research and data analysis, um, you give me a number you want and I will make it that number. Totally. That's <laughs> the flip side, which again, look, none of these things are perfect, but the FUD, it's so pervasive. Um, my personal favorite is you can't have smart contracts on top of Bitcoin or Bitcoin's not Turing complete uh-huh. because most of the people who drop that phrase have little comprehension of what Turing completeness <laughs> is and why it's even relevant for a compute language to be Turing complete. So there's one more that I want to touch on. I actually don't think that this is on the dice, but the tether FUD. Which I love this one in particular because I'm actually super skeptical of Tether. I have been a longtime hater of Tether. And yet, you know, as, as I see these articles come out over and over again over the years about how Tether is going to bring down Bitcoin, part of me is kind of vindicated. I've even been quoted in some of these articles as, uh, as a Tether skeptic. But again, it's like you become immune to it over time. Because it's like, okay, this thing has been around for like five plus years at this point. Nothing has happened yet. Why is this news today? It's ridiculous. Um, And what's so interesting about the tether FUD is a lot of times, again, when the tether FUD is used, it's used to support uh, claims for another more... I don't know, more credible version of Tether, that's effectively the same thing, just with a different central entity. Not Tether, but it's insert your favorite crypto exchange or crypto company name here. And so I find it just fascinating that people find this way to kind of cherry pick claims and present them in a way that supports their argument. Look, here's my whole take on all of the FUD and this whole Bitcoin is dead situation. Yes, there are a lot of challenges. Like any experimental new technology, Bitcoin and all of these other sort of technologies have fundamental challenges that need to be resolved. Some of them are technology challenges. Some of them are social coordination challenges. Some of them are business model challenges. But to try to reduce this to one point, focus on that one point, and then use it to substantiate something that is equally based in a lack of facts, it's insanity. Completely. And so we'll start to wrap this up here. But, you know, I I think that the takeaway is that none of this is unique to crypto. To me, to you, I think, Melton, as well, it can feel especially bad in crypto because we know about it, because we can see all of the misalignment of incentives that go on as people report on it, as people read about it, et cetera. 
But I, I do have hope that it will improve over time as people's understanding of the space continues to improve, as journalists do dive deeper and deeper into it and get a better and better sense of what's going on and why. And there are also some initiatives from within the space that are trying to provide more clarity and transparency, right? So I know we've talked in the past about Masari. I know that you're an investor in Masari and closely related to Mm -hmm. them. Disclosures, disclosures. Um, But, you know, they're not a media outlet, but I think that their efforts around transparency and writing in plain English Mm -hmm about what this technology is good for is starting to go a long way towards providing some of this clarification and clarity. Yep. Um, There's also True Story, Preeti Kassaretti and her team have been doing these live online debates, which are, I think, helpful. I think to me, the bigger point there is we should be able to have healthy debate in the crypto community. I don't believe I'm right. I actually don't think that there is such a thing as right all of the time. It's subjective. That's right. And there's nuance to all of this. Long long nuance short the clickbait. That's what that's what I've been saying. Because nuance again, it often doesn't make for a great marketing tagline. It often doesn't sell newspapers, right. whatever it is. But that's one thing I really really appreciate about the True Story project is that it's bringing some nuance to the, these conversations. But this, goes back, and- but this goes back to Jill, I think this broader theme, right? So one of the topics I like to think about with governance is if you think about how governance worked, you know, back in the olden days, people didn't really read, there were no newspapers, there was no internet. Where would people go to gather data points, to gather different opinions, and to form their own opinion? There was the forum, right? There were yep. um, there was oratory as an art form. There was debate. People would attend or go to town squares or you know different places around the city where they would watch people debate one another. And it was through this debate and this discourse and this presentation of different perspectives, different interpretations of fact that people would form their own version of reality. And we're doing this every day, right? I call this the right to change my mind, which in the crypto community, like somehow people don't have that right. But as we (laughs) learn, as we gather new information, as we deepen our understanding, as we form mental connections between different concepts, our perception of reality changes. Our perception of facts changes. And so what I get most dismayed by is that people are unable to have thoughtful intellectual discourse where they disagree on topics without it being perceived as hostility. That's how people function. It's insane. Totally. And, you know, hopefully with this podcast, we're starting to bring some of that nuance to the conversation. We're starting to create space, at least for each other, to change our minds, even midstream. Um, And hopefully (laughs) the industry keeps moving in that direction. But look, at the end of the day, it's all about education, but it's also all about the narrative. And if you don't write your own narrative, someone else will write it for you. And so my push to the crypto community and my push to every company I invest in, everyone I work with is write your own damn narrative. Don't let other people define what your world is for you. And so ultimately where this leads us back to is probably the most important skill right now for any crypto project, any crypto investor, is your ability to communicate. Amen to that, Milton. And I think that that's a good place to wrap up this episode. Write your own narrative. Don't just listen to the narratives that the media are giving you wholesale. And don't forget, Bitcoin is dead. Long live Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. 
Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Thanks again to our sponsors this week, Celsius Network. As a reminder, head over to Celsius and use the code GEARS when signing up to get free Bitcoin when you deposit more than $500. All right, gang, one final reminder to check out Consensus Coindesk's annual event. Here's what you can expect. You'll hear news and emerging trends from trailblazers like Niall Ferguson, Christine Moy, and yours truly. You can get involved in a two-day hackathon at Microsoft's Tech Center, where hundreds of developers will compete for $30,000 in cash prizes. And you can network with developers, founders, regulators, investors, and more. And us. So get your tickets today, since last year's event sold out. Just go to consensus2019.com, and don't forget to use Gears 300 so they know we sent you. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.